The Sydney Festival podcast was recorded on the lands of the Gadigal people, whose sovereignty was never ceded. We pay our respects to their elders past, present, and those who are yet to emerge, and thank them for their wisdom. For 45 years, Sydney Festival has brought you bold performance, cultural celebrations, art, and big ideas to our sticky Sydney summers. I'm Wesley Enoch, the Artistic Director of Sydney Festival 2021. Our program this year is called Australian Made, and it's mostly about recovering after the year we've had. But it's also about connecting with our community, about reinvigorating our incredible local art scene, and to remind us of how resilient we really are. So let's get started. G'day everyone and welcome to Walkley's Live as part of the Sydney Festival. My name is Benjamin Law and it's such a pleasure to be here with you all today here on the sovereign lands of the Gadigal. First Nations people on this continent, like the Gadigal of the great Eora Nation, have been sharing stories and knowledge here on this land for tens of thousands of years and together they constitute the oldest continuing human civilization this planet has ever seen and we are particularly grateful to elders past and present that we can continue sharing stories and knowledge here on what is and what will always be Aboriginal land. Now, welcome to the first session in our Walkley's live series, The Journalist Gene, where we look at the award-winning work of seven extraordinary journalists exploring the national and international contexts in which their work took place, the influences and personal inspirations for their approach and their professional drive, courage and values that sustain them. Basically, what we're going to do is we're going to try to get them to talk a little bit about themselves as well as their remarkable work, which is actually harder to do than it sounds because most journalists, and this includes photojournalists, are probably happier being on the other side of the camera. But as well as having our respected guests on stage today, we also have the participation of performer Angeline Penrith, who's going to animate, dramatise and otherwise illuminate some of the background material to the work of these seven inspiring professionals. So it's more than just an interview, it's less of an interrogation, we might call it a probe and a play which I realise sounds a bit medical, but it's not going to be medical. Um, this series is a collaboration between the Sydney Festival and the Walkley Foundation, which celebrates and supports great Australian journalism. The Walkleys set the industry benchmark for excellence and best practice through the well-known Walkley Awards. And the storytellers in the spotlight today are both Nikon Walkley Award-winning photographers. First up, Nick Moyer is a chief photographer at the Sydney Morning Herald, where he's worked since 1993. He's best known for his coverage of environmental and meteorological events over 20 years, including uh, the 2001 Black Christmas, 2003 Canberra fires, 2004 Asian tsunami, the 2009 Black Saturday fires, and several tornado seasons in the US. He was already uh, Nikon Walkley Australian Press Photographer of the Year in 2002, and of his 2020 Nikon Walkley award-winning series Firestorm, the judges said, this was a masterly series displaying the full range of Nick Moyer's technical skill and 20 years experience. Every image is breathtaking, capturing the Armageddon-like atmosphere 
of the Firegrounds. Our second guest is Sylvia Leiber, who's been a passionate visual storyteller at the Illawarra Mercury for more than 20 years now. In recent years, Leiber has been shooting underwater portraits and her accolades include four other Nikon Walkley prizes. Of her Nikon Walkley Community Regional Prize winning portfolio, Strength and Resilience, the Walkley judges commented, Sylvia Leiber's body of work highlights the diversity of her range. Covering major events as well as personal stories, her work demonstrates the intimacy and trust a regional photographer can build with their community. Please make them both feel welcome. Nick and Sylvia, welcome to the stage. Thank you. So Hi, good to see you, you both. Thanks for making the time. Look, I want to start with almost a technical question. Um, nerd. What do you... I know, nerd, right? What do you call yourselves and your line of work? There's, there's a range of options. Photojournalists, news photographers, simply just photographers. Nick, let's start with you. What do you prefer and why? Uh, it depends what I'm doing. I mean, I don't... Not that fussy, but um, essentially day-to-day, -day, I just call myself a news photographer. But when I'm doing the things that I am knowledgeable in and, um, and, and have spent a lot of time, and I'm actually building into a long-form story, um, then photojournalist, because I am actually the one in charge of the story there and, and, and building the story. So, mm. yeah. Sylvia, what about you? We heard before when I was introducing you, one of the things that um, the Walkley judges highlighted about your work is, is range. You know, you're not just known for one kind of style of work. So are you similar to Nick in that your titles change depending on the kind of work that you're doing? Um, no, I call myself a press photographer mm -hmm. because, um, yeah, down at the Mercury, we, we do a bit of everything from sport, news, Beaches, breaking news. So no, for me, it's press photographer. And do you like all of that work equally? What was that? Sorry? Do you like all of that kind of work equally? I do. I love it. I'm very passionate. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, very yeah. passionate. Look, I also want to talk about the photos for which you're probably both well known, at least recently. Um, the the photos and the body of work for which you won the most recent Walkley Awards. Um, uh, Nick, let's start with you because on some days your work. Uh, we'll see you really in. <laughs> we'll see you in extreme circumstances, and this is something that you specialise in. So, the summer of 2019 and 2020, you're facing the full fury of extreme weather, and you're trying to capture what the force of that looks like in a photograph. Let's let's have a look at some of those photos, and I'd love you to take us through the process and the stories behind what we're seeing, because some of this footage and some of the images might be familiar, but in terms of your experience of what we're seeing, what was this like? Uh, this is the second day of when the um, Green Model Creek fire um, came out into Orangeville, into southwestern Sydney, and I mean, I usually have the, the, the car cam going just um, it's more of a memory. Uh, this is Bilpin when the fire swept through and destroyed uh, a number of um, homes up in uh, and buildings up in Bilpin. Um, look, it, it's what I'm actually trying to capture is um, <coughs> not just what you're what you're seeing, but also the the, the you want the atmosphere. So you, uh, my photographs, I want you to be able to smell the photograph and feel the tension and, and really to show. Um, what it is the firefighters and, and the, um, 
and the homeowners and everybody who shares that event. I mean, beforehand, you might not know each other and you may even not like each other. I mean, there were plenty of times when there's a lot of uh, hard words happening. But when it all goes down, um, you're, you're really just... Um, it, it's a shared experience and you come away different. I mean, there's the, the, the Orangeville um, photographs uh, that you'll see come up soon um, when there was a, a huge... Um, uh, it's called an area ignition, when essentially uh, uh, the, the air became a fuel and it all ignited. Didn't know any of the firefighters beforehand. Um, in a few days' time, I'll be taking some of those firefighters on a tour of um, uh, the exhibition of some of that work. And it's, I mean, they even say that this is some of that there. It's, it's like they'd never seen anything like it. It was a, um, a moment which a uh, community and those who are involved um, base their, it's a, a milestone in their lives, whether it's for good or bad. You know, even just that phrase when I hear you say, um, this was a pre repeated quite a lot about these most recent fires, we've never seen anything like it. What about for you? You know, you're a photographer who goes into extreme meteorological events. As we heard before, you've covered Black Christmas, Canberra fires, the 2009 Black Saturday fires. For you as a photographer, was there something different about these fires? And if so, did that change your approach? The difference with this year is in like 2001, 2002 and 2003 and 2009, they were one of events that at most went for about a week in the end. This went for months and so it was just this day after day of, of trying to predict where it was going to happen and then just having the energy um, to, to get back up and, and keep going. And while at the, at, at, at the first, say, month it was exciting and, and uh, you know, it's, it is exciting covering these things, but it, it just grinds you after a while that there's, like, you just know, seeing the forecast, that there's no way they're going to stop these fires. And then it just got bigger and bigger. I mean, even at right at the start of the season, talking with um, experienced um, firefighters who I've known for years, um, we were just looking at the numbers and just going... It's this is going to get really bad. Like it, it, unless there is huge amounts of rainfall, it's going to be an unparalleled season. Like so, there was a fear, just that overwhelming um, anxiety of where we're going to get to. And, and this was in November, and generally you're peaking around late January. So. <laughs> it was getting pretty scary. Mm. And you mentioned just before that in extreme situations, obviously there can be argy-bargy between all the people trying to do their respective jobs on the ground. What, where does the conflict come from mainly, especially when it comes to putting uh, photojournalists and photographers in this kind of situation? It's, it's, it tends to be with um, either homeowners who uh, are not used to working w with media around, um, or sometimes a few local RFS brigades, I mean, it's their, it's their homes that are burning. Um, so ten, when, when you've got strike teams from uh, uh, um, other parts of the, the, the city or the state, they're usually pretty calm and, and collected and cool and happy to have you there, especially um, the Sydney-based ones because they're very used to um, having the media around. Um, <clears throat> I mean, it's in part of the Rural Fires Act that we are allowed to cover there. So, um, But... When you get into some of these smaller communities, particularly if there's been deaths um, or they've been enduring a long period, um, it requires the media to to have some empathy um, with the, what they're what the, the people around them. Um, I mean, you are there not to cover your story; you're there to cover their story. And sometimes it really requires you calmly 
sitting down with them and, and just saying, look, it's going to be really tough over the next few days. Um, I, I am going to be around here. You might not like me, but perhaps in a few years' time, when you're able to show this is what we went through, you'll see why I was here. I mean, some people, they can't be um, resolved to bring back to that. But, <clears throat> you know, that's my job is to to cover this. I mean, there's been other bad fire seasons in the past, but in the end, it's the the visuals, whether it's um, stills or video, that are the where we learn the... Um, that's how we, we learn how bad they are. Um, I mean, the firefighters aren't out there doing data acquisition. They're out there fighting the fires. There's a very small amount of um, science teams um, doing the, the work around it. So the only people really, whether it's like we're doing, uh, I mean, news and, and to a point art, but we're also capturing the fire activity. Um, and so it requires experience and that's how we learn. Well, let's talk about those things that you've brought up, which is I hear a conversation about empathy, access and community. And those elements, I feel, are very present, especially in your work, Sylvia, and what you're bringing to um, the audiences with your photographs. Let's see some of your work now. And I would love for you to guide us through um, thinking about those three keywords, especially the human aspect of how you get the, the photographs and the images that you need to get. Is there a mission statement behind how you're approaching your work? Um, look, it's just, it's follow your instincts, you know, and um, yeah, have some empathy and, um, and do your job and do it well. That's pretty much what I do. That you make it sound so simple, <laughs> but I imagine like... I've got years of experience though, so I know how to approach someone, but yeah, you've got to show empathy. You can't just going guns blazing. Um. I imagine after this long in the field, you probably have refined those instincts with how to approach people Absolutely. and how to gain their trust. But if you were mentoring someone new into the role, the kind of role that you play, what kind of advice would you be giving them in terms of how to engender that empathy and gain that trust? Well, first thing is that I, I believe personally that the um, secret to a good photo is the way you speak to the person when it comes to portraiture. So, yeah, but um, with all of this, um, fires, it was all based on instinct, mm. you know, years of experience. Like, uh, they were, it was called the Black Summer, but on the South Coast, we were calling it the Forever Fire because it just wouldn't end. Um, it disrupted holidaymakers. Roads were becoming car parks mm. because they couldn't go anywhere. Um, yeah, so, um, and then people return in for the first time, you know, the reality sets in. Hmm. I think some of the thing about Sylvia, though, is she doesn't, um, throughout her career, her images aren't something where she has taken something from them. It tends to be a collaboration, particularly her portraiture, that you can see the person is involved, wants to be involved, and it's very much about getting that sort of... Yeah, and that's what that I'm saying, you've got to approach that person and learn to speak with them and um, just, yeah, just have is, that empathy. Is there a tricky balance? Because some of those images we see there are moments of pure vulnerability and they're especially candid as well. So I imagine there's one thing to collaborate with someone while also balancing that with needing to capture a real human moment that isn't staged. How do you find that balance? Well, with a lot of these, like particularly this day here, it was the, the first day that residents were allowed back to their home. And um, I was there with a journalist and um, 
I saw residents sifting through some of their remains um, left from the fire and um, I started taking photos and there was a lady and she saw me and she started yelling and screaming, so what are you doing? Stop taking my photo. And automatically I put my camera down and um, I walked up to her and I apologised. I said, look, I'm really sorry for upsetting you. I, I know this is a lot and um, um, my name's Sylvia. I'm with the Illawarra Mercury and I'm just here to, you know, to tell the story, just to document what's been happening. I think it's important that, that people see what's happening. And um, we talked for about, I think, five minutes. By the end of it, she was apologising to me. Mm. She hugged me. And it was like she, she gave me permission <laughs> kind of thing. I mean, yeah, she was just so sweet. So I stood back and started taking photos. And that's where I got a lot of my um, real intimate, um, yeah, that, that emotional stuff that we're after as photographers. Mm. I mean, when I see both of the work that you're kind of doing, I see obviously a threat of potential physical danger because you're capturing extreme environments. I mean, to what extent, Sylvia, do you feel that as a photographer, that when you go on assignment, you're putting yourself into positions of danger? Um, when, when it comes to fires, um, I'm not as experienced as Nick, but, um, yeah, I try to... Um just follow what the RFS tell me to do. I'm not, yeah, like I said, but when it comes to other jobs, um, it's a bit different. Emotional danger though? There's, yeah, there's a lot of emotional danger, but even so, um, we, we ventured into the, the, the fire zones and spoke to people that lost everything. Mm. And um, they were happy. Mm. They were happy that we were there to tell their story. So, you know, they thanked us. So for me, you know, that's, that's great, you know, it's like, yeah, I'm glad that I made a difference. You know, if I can make a difference in someone's life, I've done something right. I do believe there was a time where you put yourself um, in a more palpable position of danger, the very first fire uh, you ever went to. And this might be the moment where performer Angeline Penrith uh, is introduced to the stage to take us back to that moment with you now in your words. It was Christmas, 2001. I was told that there were fires and the paper wanted some shots. So to give you a quick idea of how utterly naive I was, I rocked up to work in thongs and a pair of shorts, thinking I would take the photos and then head off to mum and dad's for Christmas lunch. And they're like, no, you're going up to the fires in Helensburg. The fires are out of control in Helensburg. But I was the new kid on the block. So even then, I really had no idea of what that meant. So I drove up to where I could see fire, and then, without any idea of what I was doing, I just, I just drove in as far as I could go. And then I saw some rural fire service guys, so I thought, okay, I'll just stay in front of them, and that's what I did. Each time they would move, I would move my car in front of them, get some more shots. And I was driving further and further towards the Helensburg fire, and eventually it surrounded me. And that's when I realised that there was no way out. I was there with the wind cameraman, and, and we had to stay put because fire is... Fire is unpredictable and sun-forgiving and it's really hot, and it's really big. And people think it's frightening because 
you suddenly realize how small you are and how little control you have. But truthfully, you've realized that hours ago. Now you're not thinking about anything except for the fact that you've done this to yourself, that you've monumentally screwed up. And, and yeah, I started to panic. I really thought I was going to die. And my husband, he wasn't my husband yet. He was living in America and I called him and he wasn't picking up. Have you done that? Fallen over at home or seen a spider or called your partner or your mother or, or your housemate and, and, and you scream out, you scream out and, and they don't come? So multiply that terror and frustration by a hundred and, and you're close. Or you phone someone and, and it's like, pick up, pick up, pick up. And they don't. So I'm screaming and crying into the phone because I have made such a terrible, stupid mistake. And why didn't I think about the power of fire? I'm going to die like a stupid, stupid little girl. And I was leaving messages like this on my fiance's phone. Eventually, they opened the roads, but I was driving over burning ember and the tires were melting in. It was just awful. Now, when I go to a fire, I have anxiety flashbacks to that. But now, of course, I know what to do. Adrenaline kicks in and, and you just do your job, you know? <laughs> Angeline Penrith, everyone. And your words, Sylvia Lieber. I mean, what, that, that is such an intense story. And those messages, I can't help but thinking what it would have been like for your then fiancé to have listened to them. But he did marry you in the end, he right? He did marry me, yes. <laughs> Gosh. No, it was very frightening, actually, yeah. Like I said, I just wasn't wearing the right equipment, like the right PPE. And um, to make it worse... We were one of the first to um, start using the um, digital cameras. And um, I don't know if anyone here has used them before, aside from Nick, but um, the, the lag is like two seconds. So you're frustrated, you're in this fire, and you're trying to capture something while you're still, you know, you're scared. And all you hear is ka-clunk, ka-clunk, and it's like, oh. <laughs> That's so frustrating. And then trying to, to send it through, like bad internet, uh, you're surrounded by fire. It wow. Was just, yeah. And relatively, that's not that long ago where you're having to deal with such slow... No. ...clunking technology. Yeah. Nick what, Nick, what about you? How has technology changed in the time where you've started out in your uh, job? When I started, I was using black and white film, um, uh, and then very quickly colour film uh, and then around about 99, 2000 we swapped over um, we, we were going to digital for the Olympic Games um, and that's, that, that were very frustrating cameras and it was wonderful to have them the ability to, to actually send pictures but on something um, like a fire where there is such astounding variations of light um, for example, there's some images of the firefighter running with embers everywhere. Um, you, we were going from 
for all the nerds out there, and I'm sure there's a few, um, <laughs> we were going from about uh, two second exposures um, at 2.8, it's like 2,000 ISO, and then the fire, when it w went up to like we were shooting about five thousandth of a second at f22 at um, at 100, and I like I shoot manually, so you're going up and down and up and down, massive variations. Those old cameras could not handle that. No, no way in the world you exposed for either the fire or um, or what was in front of it. So if you photographed a firefighter in front of the flames, then the flames would be way over. Um, overexposed. Okay, well let's just take this one moment for the nerds uh, because I'd love to know for the kind of work that you do, I imagine you both need to be nimble in your own ways but at the same time you need great quality equipment to make sure that you get the best image possible. Mm -hmm. Sylvia, is there, such a, is there such a thing as a typical setup or do you change what you bring with you depending on what you anticipate the situation to be? Oh, look, depending on the situation and where you're at, like when you're at a fire, you want to be free, you know, you don't want to have to lug around a tripod or a stand or, you know, I just carry two cameras, one with a wide angle, one with a 70 to 200. So, yeah, both shot on manual, um, I set it all up, but yeah, two lenses, two cameras, and I'm free. So, yeah, I try not to carry too much. Yeah. Is, how similar is that to you? Similar-ish, uh, except I tend to go one camera um, with the 24 to 70, and I'll keep a backup camera and a longer lens in the car. Um, it, it's, I just find those... Uh, I mean, I've had back problems, and when you've got two different weighted cameras and you're hauling them around, um, it can be you're not good in your back, especially if you're running around. So I just find particularly if you have to be really agile and running in really hot situations, I tend to go one camera so I can hold it safely and not have things jangling around. So, um, I mean, I tend to stay pretty close to the vehicle. Um, as soon as you start getting more than like 100 metres away from your vehicle, then you get to the point where you can get cut off pretty mm -hmm. easily. And how do you both manage the balance between getting in, getting fully in where you need to be, but also staying out of the way in an emergency situation? How do you navigate that tricky conundrum, Sylvia? Well, with the last fire, um, I couldn't get in, actually. Um, because we've got, with ACM, we've got publications all along the south coast, so we all rely on each other to supply photos from that particular area. But when this fire became a mega blaze and you know people were losing their lives, um, there was devastation, and the editor gave us the green light to go, um, it was too late. I couldn't get in. So um, I just pretty much worked on the aftermath. Mm. So yeah, yeah, it was yeah. just too late. Uh, looking back, though, was that did that necessarily have to be a problem because it's in the aftermath that you captured? Oh, no, I, I was still happy of, covering the aftermath. Yeah. Um, I would have loved to have been right in there again, but um, it is what it is. I had my accreditation, but I had to wait for the fire to come through because it was just too late. You're either in there or you've got to wait. Right. There's no in-between Okay. because then it becomes dangerous. Right. And, you and then when you're in there, as you've been in there, how do you make sure that... You you're getting access without becoming an obstacle? Um, often, um, like I'll try and pick a, a spot before, well, like in the, in the morning, I'll turn up at maybe 5, 6 a.m. Uh, the last season where I thought the fires were going to impact. 
Um, and so by then you're actually, um, uh, you've got a relationship with some of the firefighters and stuff. But, uh, I mean, it comes down where sometimes you, you're going to be in a round. If, if the crews are comfortable with you being there, then you're just not going to, you're not going to be in the way. Um, especially if you're an extra, like if you've had some experience in fires, it, for them it's just an extra person watching their back. Um, so, you know, there were times where I was, like, I'd help haul uh, the hoses, especially when they're gone out of fair way. They become, they're full of water, they're very heavy, so, you know, you help lift them, do that. I mean, you're not photographing, you're photographing about 1% of the time, mm. so there's other things that you can do if it's talking to, to locals or um, just even sometimes just helping clean out of the yard. I mean, I've got friends who actually, there were no firefighters around um, at, at times, so they were putting out spot fires by hand. Do people ever get angry at you if you're taking photographs and not helping, even though that is yeah. your job? Yeah, yeah, and, and you, you can't... Um, I, the thing is, it, it's, you can talk at them, but it's pointless arguing with them because it's a really stressful period of time and they're looking for someone to vent their frustration and here comes... I mean, I used to have long hair until a couple of days ago and here comes this stinking hippie um, and so that you're target number one, but um, it, it's you, you just got to be like these guys are going through a hard time. You just stay out of there, just try and stay out of their way. Uh, I mean, but um, yeah, it, it it does happen. I mean, people um, sometimes just don't do not they, they have little. They may actually have little connection with the actual media and how actually uh, history is covered, and 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 they literally think that. You're just going to run out and sell all your, you know, all this devastation for money. I mean, they kind of have a point because that's how newspapers work. But that's not what we're doing. I mean, particularly with staff photographers, we're 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 paid to be there uh, and and cover what is happening for um, the newspapers to sell newspapers, but also to cover history and so we can learn. I mean, we're uh, like I very much believe when it comes to um, environmental stories, um, I very much believe in what I am doing and that I can make a contribution. Hmm. I mean, Sylvia, if we're talking about a contribution, you know, when you're capturing a community under a state of stress who have survived trauma or in a state of trauma, you're capturing it with empathy, but I imagine that takes energy of you as well. I mean, what kind of personal cost has doing the kind of work you do taken of you? Um, when I'm in those situations, um, like the last time we were in the fire zone and um, you're listening to all this loss and heartbreak, so you, you kind of indirectly put yourself into their story and, you know, you feel it and they, they see that, they see that empathy from you and by the end, you know, like I said before, they're thanking you and that makes me feel happy. So I don't take it as a bad thing. I, I think, wow, you know, we've done a good thing. So it doesn't worry me too much. Like as long as I, I know that I've made someone happy or I've done my job right, yeah. I mean, you, you work for, um, you know, a, a newspaper that's covering, you know, a geographical patch and yep. often I imagine, well, and often in your work, you're covering stories about trauma, around neighbourhoods and places that are familiar to you. And yeah. does, that, does that add to the sense of difficulty or does that actually bond you tighter? Um, probably a bit of both. Um, look, I think I'm a tough cookie. Yeah. 
So, you know, um, I know how to switch it off and, yeah, and think of it, no, that's just work right now and, you know, go home and go to your family. So it doesn't really yeah, affect me too much. Does it make you ask, and maybe this is a slightly philosophical question, but does it make you ask bigger questions that induce dread at all? Because when I see the work that you both do, I also think as much as it's a story about um, a community and about the environment, you're also on the front lines of capturing a big global story yeah. about environmental and mm -hmm. ecological collapse. Do you reflect on that aspect of your work? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Look, you know, we're, we're the, the passionate and yet sometimes half-crazy individuals that put ourselves out there to, you know, to, to tell people and show people what needs to be seen. So, yeah, I, that's what I love. I'm passionate, so, yeah. You know, when you say um, people show appreciation and gratitude for the work that you yeah. do, is there one or, or any other exchange that stands out in your mind or memory about, you know, people displaying and demonstrating that gratitude for you who'd been through something tough? Um, look, with most of my portraits, um, by the end of it, we all become good friends. <laughs> I kind of, yeah, we form a relationship it's not just going there and taking people's photos, it's, it's learning about them. They learn about you, you learn about them, you form that relationship and that's how you, you, can, you get that amazing portrait in the end. You're not just going there, snapping a photo and going, you know, you've got to learn about your subject. Go deep. Show that, yeah, go deep, show that interest and yeah, and then you, you will get that powerful image. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, Nick, we're talking about the personal cost. What about the work that, that you do? Because I imagine that takes a lot of you and demands a lot from you. Um, what is the personal cost of doing this kind of work and, and how do you deal with it? I mean, it's kind of twofold, I guess. I mean, over the, the years, uh, it does take a cost. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm a father of, of four and there's just no doubt that um, something that requires total focus, like fires and storms, um, require you to keep an eye on what's happening in the weather ahead, um, like learn meteorology, and, and then on those days, you actually can't be distracted. You actually have to focus on what's happening around you, because otherwise, um, mistake you, you make bad mistakes. And so there's just no doubt that there are, like certainly the last fire season, um, the kids didn't see you know, a lot of me until I decided to take holidays, but we'll hear about that soon. Yeah. Um, uh, and, to, and to what extent is your family actively worried about you? Because anyone watching the news over that period... No, they're pretty cool about it. It's right. just um, I, I'm exhausted, and so, of course, you, you get um, grumpy and, and ready, and, and, it's, and also you're, you're obsessive. And also, like, uh, this season in particular, I, I was becoming depressed like I was really pissed off at um, the politics uh, around a lot of this sort of stuff um, like, like for instance people going yeah Gladys is doing a great job and for me it's like no part of the reason why some of these fires got so big is because of cuts to the raft teams in the New South Wales Parks and Wildlife Service and so it's like no and, and so I was seeing like you, you're literally seeing species annihilated, like there are species that will have been wiped out, there are ecosystems gone, like that is like, like, it, like literally priceless um, yeah, ecosystems destroyed that cannot be um, 
brought back. And they are unique. Like We are a unique country with animals that exist nowhere else on the planet. And, and they're gone. So for me, I was getting angry and, and frustrated, um, particularly by... Yeah, once the Gospers Mountain fire really started just hammering into um, into the Blue Mountains and down into the Hawkesbury, I was getting yeah angry and frustrated, but I, I guess even more focused that I was just going to keep going and going and going and, and, and covering it and also uh, making sure that the, the journalists w w were hearing about, you know, various screw-ups um, and, and decisions. And, you know, like I was making contacts in um, the national parks and, and, and RFS. And, I mean, they, they are all awesome. I love them. Um, but there's um, decisions made in the years preceding this that could have made things better. Mm. Um, the word aftermath has come up when we're talking about the aftermath that you've captured um, of communities, Sylvia. But I wonder if there's kind of a personal aftermath after you've been on assignment, the adrenaline's up, you've uh, filed all of your stories, but then you, there's a moment of stillness. What, what's that like for you? Well, if you've done a good, like a, a good job, like s certainly like um, the 21st of December um, in 2019 was when the fire swept through Dargan and Clarence and Bilpin. Um, I, it, it was a traumatic day. I grew up in that, that region um, and a lot of homes burnt and, and it, was a, it was a bad day. Um, however, at the end of that day, I was able to go, I was able to sleep. It was like, like no, I did my job, but now I'm, I'm beat, I'm, I'm, I'm done. I need, a, I need a rest. I guess I felt like I had done the best job I could, but that uh, I was at a kind of a breaking point where I'd start making mistakes mm. if I kept going because I was just too tired. Have you had a rest? Oh, yeah, kind of. <laughs> um, no, I mean, that I, I went on holidays to the south coast <laughs> just as the Currawan fire was really breaking out. So, yeah, it wasn't so much of a holiday. And then, of course, I've been really looking forward to finally getting that, that big holiday with the kids and then we got locked down in the northern beaches. So wow. It's been a kind of year. But you know what? It could be worse. You could be in the US or the UK. Look, I'm not going to ask you to put it into words because you actually have done so already. And we're yep. going to get Angeline to actually convey what actually happened and take us back to that moment with you. So I went with 17 of my family down to Currawong on the south coast. The fires are still burning all around the state and I'm trying to ignore that. I'm having a break, you know. Like even on a normal day, I'm quite hyperactive. I have various anxiety issues that I've spent plenty of time with the counsellor with about. But on that day, I'd, I'd just come off for day after day after day of fire. Always having to be alert to the fact that anything could change immediately and and I may need to come up with some new plan pretty quickly. So uh, hyper-vigilant for months. And now I'm trying to relax. And like other people, they book in things on certain dates and, and they could find it hard to be with me because I'm like, oh, let's do this right now, which is like a, a massive asset for the job, but not so much for relationships. You need to be very understanding partner because there's uh, pros and cons with all of that. 
spontaneity. So I don't love doing fires, but I am drawn to them. So I'd say I'm, I'm addicted to them, but I don't love them. I feel a real need to show what's happening and, and I try to make people understand why, why it's important. It's an instinct and a need that I have. <laughs> I'm a pain in the ass if I know there's a fire and I, and I know that I'm not there. I might be at the beach with the kids looking at my phone going, far out. So here's me on the south coast trying not to buy into it when every day the fire is coming closer and closer. So we get to this harrowing New Year's Eve and I'm there with all my family and they're just not taking it seriously. They're going, oh nah, it probably won't come this far. And I'm, I'm like, we need to be prepared to move. And they were like, oh come on Nick, just relax. This is not real, this is the legacy of the last couple of months. We'll be fine here. Until, until literally there was a massive pyrocumulus sending out lightning bolts and it was raining black rain, full of ash. <laughs> and I was saying to everyone, we need to go down to the beach, now. And yeah, then they listened. And you know, it didn't get to Karawong, but for thousands of people last year, thousands of people, it did get to them. And it wasn't fine. And I'll never forget that. Because I'm the one who goes there and witnesses and documents what they're going through. <laughs> Angeline Penrith, everyone, um, telling your story, which I imagine is for each of you a slight out-of-body experience. Absolutely. But, uh, <laughs> as, I, as I hear each of those stories that Angeline's conveyed um, to us of both of you, I think these are such dramatic, um, incredibly intense things that you've both survived and, and lived through. And, you know, the, the last line of, of what, what Angeline performed of your story, because I'm the one who goes there and witnesses and documents what they're going through. On the other side of that, you know, we talk about um, the ways in which re returning service people uh, need to be supported after a traumatic event. What about photographers? Is there best practice? Is there support for you on the other side of this? Uh, I, you know, do you get what you need to recover from something like that? Um, for me, I just um, get my camera, underwater housing, and dive into some underwater silence. I love shooting underwater, that's my release. So that's what I do. Okay, yeah. can, we, can we talk about that a little bit more? Because this is interesting, the kind of antidote kind of photography that mm. each of you do in response to that. And I do believe we have some images of the work that you do yeah. underwater. Um, it's almost like the perfect antidote to fires, <laughs> isn't it? Getting, getting into the water. Right. Tell me, tell me you're, you're still engaging with your practice, but in a yep. different way. Yeah. Why the water? What do you get out of it? Um, look, for me, just shooting in the ocean, it's this magical feeling, um, the, the, the feeling of weightlessness, it's just, yeah. And um, I shoot with my husband, we do it together, because you need that second person there, just in case, you know, you don't you stop breathing. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> but um, what we do is um, we just pick some subjects, and um, just using imagination, 
we place them into the raw power and turbulence of the ocean, mm -hmm. set up against like Mother Nature's amazing backdrop, and just hope for some beauty and all with one deep breath. Wow. So Now we might be able to see those photos soon, but I do believe yeah. we might have to see your photos that are an antidote to the kind of extreme work that you do, Nick. Uh, I believe that one of your coping strategies is going from fires to storm chasing. Is this true? Yeah, yeah. I mean, particularly in Australia, it's just not really dangerous, but there is something um, really liberating about actually just getting out on the road and driving, but then also spending a couple of days and, and going forecasting, going, okay, I think this is what's going to happen here. Um, so I might, you know, I'll go out and storm chase. Okay, here we, well, that's not Australia. That was the US. But, um, but um, yeah, it, it's, it's incredibly um, liberating when you go out there, you, fo you forecast a couple of days beforehand and... and, and find a spot and then a storm becomes organised and does all the things it's supposed to, does hail over here and starts rotating or in the US it'll drop tornadoes and stuff. You say liberating, I imagine other people here chasing a storm and think terrifying. Why not terrifying for you? Yeah, because they're all lame. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's it's um, an awesome experience um, and I mean it in the true intent of the word as in when you are there, you are very small, and this is not just some clouds. It becomes very organised, as in there is a structure, there is inflow, outflow, uh, rotation of all these nerdy words of, of the wall clouds, the mesocyclone, the, the ghost train, there's the beaver tail. There's all sorts of really cool stuff, but they become highly organised, and you can predict, um, you know, most of the time where they're going to go and what they're going to do, and so these massive um, atmospheric entities m might survive for two or three hours, maybe a bit longer sometimes, and you can watch their, their life from literally a puff of white into this monstrous um, supercell thunderstorm. Does it feel like work? To what extent no. is this considered oh, it's work? It's hard work, and it can be very stressful, but um, it's extremely rewarding um, when it comes through, when you get a, a beautiful picture. Yeah. And what about for you with your underwater photography, Sylvia? Does that feel like work? Is it technically still work? It doesn't feel like work you? at all. It's, it's a passion. It's a love. It's what I love doing. Yeah, so no, it's mm. not, definitely not work. It's a calming kind of antidote. <laughs> Very much so, yeah. Right. It's just, like I said, you, you feel free. It's your own personal thoughts under there, um, the silence. Um, I mean, when you direct a, a, a photo shoot, like a, a portrait, Normally, you, you speak to your subject, you say, you know, um, but with underwater, there's no, there's no words, okay? It's freedom. So, and that's what you're there. You're just there to shoot whatever you see. And it's natural. It's amazing. Another slightly nerdy technical question, but what's going on? Because, like, not everyone can shoot beautiful underwater photographs. What, what equipment uh, look, are you using? What's it's involved? Very I mean, like, hard work. It's I imagine, like, hard. digital cameras and water aren't always the best bedfellows either. <laughs> well, I, I think I've drowned two cameras. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's not the easiest, but, um, but uh, it, it's something I love doing. Um, with these photos that are coming up now, they're, they're part of my uh, Walkley winning photos. Mm. That was from Lake Conjola. Um, but anyway, it's just something my husband and I love doing together and um, it just gives you that 
sense of, yeah, feel, uh, feeling accomplished, yeah. Yeah. It's There's something also about in, in the ocean and for me also with storms where mm. yeah. you are putting yourself danger. at the mercy yes. of something bigger and you are not in control and you're going with, like, yeah. like there's an element of you know what you're doing, but you're also willing to put yourself in the hands of this, you know, water god or the ocean <laughs> or whatever it is. Yeah. Um, the thing is, it is bigger and stronger than you. Like a sense of surrender almost? Yeah. Well, during one of the shoots, actually it was a photo that won the Walkley a couple of years ago mm. um, called Deep Love for Dance. During that shoot... Um, I encountered my first shark. <laughs> oh, my God. Okay, yes. now this sounds terrifying. Was it terrifying or exhilarating? Uh, look, it was, but I, I kept my cool. Um, I was shooting these two girls actually right here, and um, my husband was with me as well. And um, during that shoot, because I was so young, I, I tend to get the parents to come along. And one of the dads um, brought along an Australian flag. And he said to me, oh, look, after the shoot, do you mind getting my daughter in the water with the Aussie flag? Because mm. Australia Day was coming up. I said, yeah, sure. Anyway, um, he comes in and he loses the flag in the water. So um, I said, look, I'll help you look for it. So I start diving down, looking around, and next minute I see two fins. And I'm thinking, oh, that's an awfully big fish. So it swims closer and all of a sudden I'm like, oh, that fish I has won't teeth. say the word, but mm. yep. And I'm like, oh, I think that's a shark. So I... I had a fisheye lens. So with a fisheye lens, and you know, it's really hard to get a picture that, that sort of far away. So I, I still snapped a couple of shots. But um, meanwhile, my husband's still continuing shooting these two girls. I called out. I says, oh, you know, I, they come over here. I think you, the light's a lot better over here. And he's like, no, no, I like it here. I go, no, it's really good over here. And he, he swims over and says, look, it's a shark. There's a shark here. We've got to get these girls out. I didn't want to say anything and freak them out. Because the last thing you want is to start panicking. You should have had like a code thing, like go. Oh, don't worry, after that we've got the code going, okay? That was the first time, so now we've got the code. <laughs> so I, I'm thinking, what have we covered now? We've, we've got extreme fires, we've got storms, tornadoes, sharks, mm. but there are also human dangers. I, I think, um, you know, Nick, you've had experiences on, on Manus Island, for instance, that have put you in danger. Um, You've been shirt-fronted before. What, what was that experience? I've been assaulted twice. I've been chased and I've been mobbed like shirt-fronted. Yeah, that was awful. What awful. were the stories that led to that situation? Um, well, which one? <laughs> <laughs> what, 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 the the shirt-fronting okay, situation, Okay, the shirt-fronting. Okay, I was actually home from work and um, I got the call from the editor saying, oh, look, um, there's been a drowning. Uh, we need you to go out there. And I was in the middle of cooking dinner, and I said, oh, I've got to go. So my husband said, look, you know, I'll come for a drive. I'll keep you company. He says, all right, so it won't take long. All I need is a scene photo, and, you know, we don't tend to go into people's faces when it's a situation like that. You've got to be respectful. So anyway, he goes, I'll keep you company. So drive down to Kayama Harbour. I could see all the activity across from the harbour, so I thought, okay, I've got my 300mm lens, which is a long lens. So I parked the car got to the boot, pulled out my lens, and next minute, a bunch of guys start running for me. What are you doing? And, you know, and they start yelling and screaming. And I'm sort of like in shock. And um, they just surrounded me, literally like, I reckon there was like 30 guys. 
Um, my husband saw that they did this, so he tries to get out of the car. They go to him, like a bunch of them stayed with me, then they, they go to him, he tries to get out and they're like kicking the car and they're spitting at him and apparently, see I didn't know at the time because all I got told was, hey, the, you know, there's been a drowning, but it was a suicide and their friend had driven the, his car into the harbour. So, you know, they were, they were traumatised, they were upset, you know, I understand all that, but I was just trying to, just to take a scene photo and go, but they took it that extra level. Anyway, there was police there. They saw what was going, there was this one police officer. And I'm, I'm going, get them off me, and I'm yelling and screaming. He's like, I don't know what to do. So he's calling for backup, and um, anyway, next minute, all the detectives from, this, from the scene came around and eventually dispersed them, but... It was a terrifying ordeal. A, a, a raw situation. Very much ver so. I think dangerous. if I was a guy, I would have been thrown in the harbour. That's Jeez. how bad it was. Yeah. Were there any lessons, I guess like professional lessons, that you learned from that day? Or, Look, um, you or... could be the most professional photographer, but situations like this, just you don't know what, what to expect. So when I go to breaking news now, I'll have one, one foot ready to do the bolt. Mm and one there doing the job kind of thing, just looking, scanning, thinking, okay, am I in trouble here? Do I need to worry about my situation? So, yeah. Yeah, one leg leaning in, the other one ready to run. Absolutely. Um, Nick, before we wrap up, I want to end with something you've suggested before, which I think is a fantastic provocation, something that's delicious to throw into a grenade of people in the media. You've suggested before that the real people reporting on the ground are actually the photographers. I didn't suggest that at all. I <laughs> flat out stated it. <laughs> <laughs> Can you expand on that? What do you mean by it? Well, these days, like 99% of the reporting is done by journalists on the phone in the office. And so uh, a lot of the time you'll be getting, at best, second-hand information. A photographer is on the ground, like in a major news event, um, a photographer uh, is on the ground covering it as it occurs. You take your photograph, you send it in. It is, there's, there's no like itch, like whispers of, and, and like screwing up the words or whatever. I mean, a journalist who's uh, like um, speaking to somebody on the scene or, you know, ringing up somebody, oh, they bring them up the day after, how was it? Oh, it was like a freight train was coming through. It's like, I mean, what are, you, what are you learning there? You're learning nothing from that. that like, there's, you're not learning any information apart from it, it, it was scary. If you analyse a photograph properly, particularly a, a line of photographs, I mean, apart from the emotion and the actual... You're going to be seeing flame height, wind speed. Um, you can see whether or not it's a pyrocumulonimbus. You can uh, work out, you know, the, the ember, the spotting rates, all sorts of information if you know how to read a photograph. So I put all the blame on the readers. And <laughs> it's about uh, um, like uh, trying to, I mean, it's important that the photographer is also aware of their power to manipulate the event. I mean, if you're just capturing that one second when it suddenly exploded, that's not how it was the entire time. But last year, it was. It was like that friggin' every day. And literally, you can tell that sort of stuff when every day you're seeing day after day of homes burning and massive, like, gigantic flames. Because 
while there is, um, you know, skill and preparation in getting into some of these areas, you can't get it right every time. But literally, we, we were seeing that sort of fire behaviour every day. I mean, so the adage of obviously, you know, a story, a, a picture tells a story of a thousand words. Yeah, but, to, but, but, but to what, to what extent do you also worry that an image you take can be taken out of context, manipulated without a broader narrative anchoring it? It, it can happen, and it does happen quite often with storm stuff. I mean, you can link fires pretty clearly with climate change. Um, storms are not so easily done. Um, so there are times where my images may be used as trying to say this is climate change, and it's like, mm, no, that, that, that's, the, the data is not out on that. While it might increase in some areas, it may bring it down in other areas. I mean, the speculation that if the entire atmosphere is warming up, you're actually decreasing instability in the atmosphere, so you actually get less storms. So I, I, I don't like that. Um, in news photography, it tends to be where the real harm is done by press, uh, press news photographers and photojournalists is um, doing generalizations and stereotypes um, photographs. And um, that, that, that's where your ignorance as the photographer can actually do harm to a community. Um, so certainly covering um, indigenous issues over the years, you, you, as a photographer, you used to just go back to just like going out to Burke. Uh, like, oh, there's kids out in the street. That must mean that they're not being looked after or something like that. It's like, like we're learning as well. It's like, no, that is not how you cover. That is cheap, lazy journalism. You need to go and spend time. If you want to do, uh, do it right, you need to go and spend time with the community and see what the problems are and work with them. I mean, mm. that's what we're trying to do in the end. You can't just parachute yourself in. No, no, it doesn't work. Mm. Now, you, do, you do damage. Final question for you, Sylvia. I'm ending with provocations, just so people can leave the room debating. But the title of this particular session is called The Photojournalist Gene. Um, well, we're talking about the photojournalist gene. Is, is, there, is there such a thing as a photojournalist gene? How much of it is about training, professionalism, and how much of it is about innate, God-given instinct? Look, I think it's an inher inherent um, gene that we have, absolutely. <laughs> It has to be, because what we do, not everyone can do. It's not for everyone. So, yeah, that's my thing. You've got to be addicted to you, yeah. poverty. Yeah. Yeah. You've got to it's be very happy to be... something that's not going, for everyone. I'm not going to be a wealthy person. <laughs> and, and also, you've got to be just in, innately curious hmm. and willing to actually, at your own cost, find out something mm. and, and share it. You're also a terrible secret keeper. Well, I wish we could extend this into another hour session about the <laughs> economics and pay rates of photography and <laughs> photojournalism in 2021. But unfortunately, that's all we've got time for at this Walkley's Live uh, session. Could you please join me in thanking Sylvia Leiber and Nick Moyer? Thanks for having us. Walkley's Live, The Journalist Gene is presented by Sydney Festival in partnership with the Walkley Awards for Excellence in Journalism. Thanks for listening. For more information on Sydney Festival, head to sydneyfestival.org.au and be sure to subscribe to the Sydney Festival channel wherever you get your podcasts.